The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Boeing drags the Dow to a fresh record high after the plane maker posts its best day in five months. On news, it plans to resume flights to the troubled 737 MAX as soon as January. More chaos in Hong Kong as demonstrators gather in the city's financial district after police fire tear gas at protesters. President Trump is expected to delay a decision on European auto tariffs for yet another six months ahead of a Thursday deadline this week. The pound strikes a six-month high against the euro after Nigel Farage says his Brexit party will not contest the seats won by the Conservatives in the last election, potentially reducing the risk of a hung parliament. And here in Abu Dhabi, in an interview with CNBC, the top dialer CEO, Patrick Pouyonnet, defending the oil and gas industry, saying people care as much about cheap energy as they do about the climate change. We speak about energy, it's a fundamental need, uh, and people, again, prefer the affordability of the energy rather than the cleanliness of it. We've got news just crossing from Osram. And don't forget, this is a lighting company that has been the centre of a takeover battle. The news just crossing, Osram has recommended a current takeover offer from AMS. And AMS is the company that has been battling against private equity that has also been looking to acquire Osram. It has concluded that the business combination agreement with AMS is uh, in course uh, of this takeover offer, the board recommending this uh, offer in reasoned opinion. Employees will be protected against merger-related layoffs till the end of 2022, so some time frame around job security. And Bridget Ederer will act as an independent monitor for the agreement. The company expects moderate revenue and margin development for the full year 2020. Savings uh, target clearly executed on an annual basis. A couple of top takeaway lines around this uh, comprehensive business combination agreement uh, between the two companies, which has been recommended to shareholders. And the company going on to say, after intense negotiations, we've agreed on many uh, decisive framework conditions for the future of Osram and their employees. This is according to the CEO of Osram Lichter. The most important thing is that the employees of German locations are protected from merger-related layoffs until the end of 2022. In addition, the strong Osram brand is to be reflected in the company name of the new group. The sensor specialist AMS explicitly supports the phototonics strategy of Osram. I think it's interesting to see their commentary on China as well, that the uh, automotive unit within Osram was affected by the sharp decline in the automotive industry in the past year, particularly in China. So really uh, corroborating what we've heard from a number of others in the sector around the weakness in the auto space, particularly in China. Now, another uh, set of earnings that have just crossed the tape is from Deutsche Post. They have reported significant revenue and earnings growth in Q3. In terms of the numbers themselves, group revenue increased by 4.7 percent 
to 15.6 billion. Operating profit improved uh, from 376 million to 942 million. So that's a pretty significant improvement. And uh, the all five divisions reported revenue and EBIT growth. So it seems to be fairly broad based. So that's a, a fairly decent report coming through for Deutsche Post. Uh, International Express business and the German parcel business saw especially dynamic growth as e-commerce continued to boom. And this is, of course, an interesting story given how much is now coming through the post with uh, the increase in online retail. Uh, so this is uh, a fairly strong set of numbers, it looks like, from Deutsche Post just hitting the yeah, tape. Of course, and I think if we break down by region, it'll be uh, quite interesting to see what's playing out in China. There had been a little bit of weakness around the macro, whether after single day, those bumper numbers that we saw across at $38 billion in revenue clocked up by Alibaba, whether there's a flow and effect for the parcel business for Deutsche Post and its partners in that key market. Absolutely. So we'll, uh, we'll dig into those numbers in just a moment. Just a quick line, year-to-date uh, performance of this company, would you expect 37%? An incredible return that you've seen uh, from this, uh, this company on the stock market, 37%. Uh, just a, a very stunning risk-on trade, I think, for some investors. All right, so well, let's leave the earnings there for a moment and get a check on where things stand in broader markets. Yesterday on Wall Street, we saw the Dow Jones hit a fresh record high. A Boeing was the key mover within that. We'll take a look at that share price in just a moment. But beyond uh, the Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 both ended a touch in negative territory. Uncertainty around the state of U.S.-China trade talks continued to cap sentiment. Uh, and also political tensions in Hong Kong, which escalated yesterday, were, of course, following following those developments very closely here on Squawk Box, but that also capped sentiment on Wall Street. But the Dow Jones, the key outperformer yesterday, uh, up a 0.04%, hitting a fresh record high. But let me take you to Boeing, because I think this is the most interesting story, the interesting mover of the day. Shares in Boeing surged 4.5% yesterday. That was the best daily performance for the stock since June. And that came after the company said it expects to resume deliveries of its grounded 737 MAX planes as early as next month, and they could be commercially uh, available, commercially restarting as soon as January. So uh, some positive developments there coming through for Boeing, and that has propelled the Dow to hit that fresh record high. Shifting gears, let's take a look at Asian markets. Yesterday was a difficult session for Asian equities. We had the the unrest in Hong Kong and those violent clashes between protesters and police weighing heavily on the uh, Hang Seng. This morning, we're seeing a bit of a rebound from there. Hang Seng is currently up about 0.4 percent, but uh, no, no doubt is still down on the week. Yesterday, the losses were uh, well beyond that level. The Shanghai Composite also uh, gaining a little bit of stability this morning. It's currently up about five basis points. The Shenzhen a touch below the flat line, so still struggling for momentum there, but a more positive session coming together than we saw yesterday. Let's take a look at European yields. We've been, of course, keeping a very close eye on the equity space in Europe, which has been very strong of late. The stock 600 log five positive weeks in a row. Uh, Yields, on the other hand, have been on the rise. So the rally we've seen, the risk on trade we've seen, seems to be at the expense of bond yields. So currently, just taking a look at where we stand on the 10-year across Europe, the German 10-year at negative 0.25%. Just about a week ago, that was at negative 0.33%. So the yields across the board
board here have been moving higher for the last week or so. And let's take a look at European opening calls, what we're in for in terms of the equity start today. Uh, green across the board, we've got the DAX and the FTSE MIB both set to lead the way higher. The CAC and the FTSE 100 also set to open in positive territory. And as we outline in the headlines there, we could be looking at uh, a delay of those auto tariffs from the U.S. on Europe, and perhaps that's adding a bit of positive momentum to uh, the trade here in Europe today. Karen? Juliana, thank you. The Total CEO, Patrick Pouyanné, says he is not at the whim of shareholders, only seeking high returns as the French oil giant makes the transition towards cleaner energy. Speaking to Steve at the Atapak Summit in Abu Dhabi, Pune says investors in the energy space are increasingly asking for, quote, sustainable dividends or higher yield. Let's get out to Steve at Adepec uh, conference. And Steve, I want to ask you about that because we've seen a number of the big companies from BP to Royal Dutch Shell also go through the same journey where they're paying out fairly significant dividends and are keeping investors on board, but they're having to become a very different company for the future energy solutions. I think you're right, Karen, and and it's a a conundrum that the gentlemen, and I'm afraid they are all gentlemen still in charge of these companies, are having to face on a daily basis. Uh, And you know what this is like, Karen, when we're faced with different constituencies talking to us, their viewpoint is the most important in the world. For instance, if you're talking to shareholders, they want income, they want return. If you're talking to Greta Thunberg or the Extinction Rebellion, they want immediate change to the energy mix, the energy composure, what have you. If you're talking to government, well, they want a little bit of everything, but they want to be re-elected. And for these companies as well, they have to return to shareholders' profitability, plus they have to take part in the energy transition and ensure for another constituency, perhaps the most important constituency, that the lights stay on. Because as we know, for climate change uh, activists in the West, it is very easy. There are alternatives in many, many ways. But if you're looking at the emerging market, you're looking at the growth areas, uh, places such as India, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, areas of China, you do not have a choice. If you only have hydrocarbons to drive economic development, then that is the choice you have. You either have the economic development or not. And I had a series of fascinating interviews all day yesterday and panels talking about it's not just about the energy transition it is about turning the lights on for people it is about feeding people it is about heating it is about transportation real basic things that perhaps in our complacency in the west we've become very accustomed to so again fascinating interviews and panels yesterday i want to give you a little snapshot of these conundrums facing the gentleman i spoke to yesterday including i had an extensive interview with patrick Pouyonne yesterday evening we're going to turn that into an in conversation as well but i honestly he was incredibly emotional incredibly passionate but he was also bemoaning the hysteria attached to this issue let's listen it's a good word at least a lot of emotion but hysteria can be uh we lose rationality you're an emotional guy i'm an emotional guy no but the people is like no but energy system is a serious matter at the end everybody wants lights everybody wants energy you know we don't want to have this energy system falling apart so true so it's clear that the young people are expressing uh and we can understand their generation will might face some difficulties in 50 years. So they are expressing the fact that uh, they want the adults and our generation to take responsibility of it, to take actions. But at the same time, uh, again, it's uh, uh, there are some fundamentals. We will, uh, and we have taken some steps. Total is investing now more than 10% of my investments are directed to low carbon electricity, which is frankly new. And we could have some debates. Uh, and uh, and from best perspective, the shareholders of our companies are not exactly on the same page, you know, because they continue to uh, 
uh, I would say, love or dividends, you know, uh, a large energy companies, oil and gas companies are good, big dividend provider. So, but the question they ask us is more, are your dividends sustainable? Sustainability of the dividend. And this is why we need to adapt ourselves our strategy. And this is why Total has shifted to be an oil company, to be more a gas and oil company. Uh, LNG is very strong. And we have added an electricity uh, dimension in our strategy. Are those same shareholders hypocrites? Are they saying to you on one hand, because I've had this conversation with peers of yours, we want higher income from you. We want even higher yields. We want north of 5%. We want north of 6%. But at the same time, we want you to have ESG. We want you to invest responsibly. We want you to grow your renewables. They can't necessarily have both. There is a finite amount of cash flow. That I, I fully agree, and it's why the strategy of Total is first to reinvest and to invest in the, in the company. In fact, let me be clear. Then, of course, we take care of the shareholders, but uh, frankly, we don't want to give them more than 5 or 6% dividend yield because we have to balance it. You know, in the energy business, we are investing for the long term, so we need to take decisions now in order to adapt our own portfolio mix if we want to continue to be a big energy and our ambition is to go from big oil to big energy you know I want to be recognized as a big energy company or my successor if not myself and so to do that we need to invest we have decided to invest the same amount of money to stabilize it 16 18 billion dollar uh, but at the end uh, we will not do that at the detriment we will not uh, increase dividend at the detriment of the strategy of the company it's not the vision of the board director of Total I enjoy speaking to Patrick Puyana. He's very honest, he's very passionate about it. And I'll just ask our viewers now, what do you want? Do you want economic development and growth and actually people to be able to turn the lights on? Do you want actually us to halt climate change and keep us to only one and a half degrees centigrade uh, increase in temperature? Or do you want dividends and increased income for yourself personally? And I think if you're being honest, perhaps you want all three, but you can't necessarily have all three. So. Are the energy companies facing an existential threat? It's a question I asked my panel yesterday, which included Joe Kayser from Siemens, Claudia Descalzi, Lorenzo Simonelli, and Bob Dudley from BP as well. So are the energy companies facing an existential threat? Let's listen to Bob Dudley of BP. We're gonna need all forms of energy to do this, and particularly natural gas. And people say we, can't, we don't need natural gas in the world. Uh, but as companies, um, it's not an existential crisis for the companies. The world will continue to need energy. It's existential if we don't lead the companies right. We could put ourselves out of business, and other people will replace that. Mm. Uh, I think we have a, a real role. as not national oil companies, investors all over the world, uh, who do depend on us to provide cash flow and dividends for pension funds, which is really important role we also play. We can't forget it. If we don't do that, we won't be around to solve the technical problems either. Uh, it's existential if we don't leave these, leave these companies right. And I just want to give a bit of an anecdote as well, Karen, because I spoke to Lord Brown of Mattingly, who is someone who actually, with Tony Hayward in between, uh, ran BP for perhaps many would say its golden era, I when it was buying huge hydrocarbon assets around the globe. Lord Brown, in around about 2000, set up something called Beyond Petroleum, changing BP from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum. It was about increasing renewables. It was about increasing alternative investments. And it tended to die a death over the following decade, by around about two 2010 because these companies were facing enormous threats because of the great financial crisis and I put it to both gentlemen both Lord Brown and Bob Dundee well why did this Beyond Petroleum die 
And apart from the fact that the company needs to go back to its core activities amidst an extreme financial crisis, it's because they didn't have support of government. It was the answer in many ways. And if government doesn't move in lockstep on policy with the energy companies, then they find it very difficult to move ahead. And it comes back down in many people's eyes to the price of carbon and whether one will be set or not. Let me hand it back to both of you in the studio. Steve, I just want to jump in and ask you about the timing of the sale of some of these assets. Because we were talking to the BP CFO the other week. And I said to him, you know, what is the, the time scale for selling some of these big cash cows? Because that's the question a lot of the, the analysts have in the community. And he was saying, you're assuming we're going to sell these assets, which then begs the question, if you see protests on the street around the environment, whether investors in Western markets, at least, will be willing to invest in these types of companies. So then do you see this move a shuffle towards exchanges elsewhere? And we've been talking about the listing of Saudi Aramco on the Saudi stock market. Is that the natural home that you see a shift for the likes of, say, a BP, a Shell, a Total, away from Western exchanges somewhere else to an emerging market? Because there's still producing much of the energy solutions for those markets in a traditional sense. Karen, I think you raised a, a great point, and let me answer it in a completely cryptic way, if I may. What about coal? Now, coal is a no-brainer to most of our viewers watching in the West. Coal, dirty, wouldn't invest in it. ESG, wouldn't touch coal with a dark barge pole. I said to my panel yesterday, well, coal's dead, which they to a man said, coal's not dead, coal's growing. Coal production is growing in parts of the world, in China, in areas such as Asia as well. So the point being, if you look at things from a Western premise, from a Western investor premise, of course there are certain hydrocarbons you won't touch. But if you're looking from an economic development premise in the East, in the Middle East, in Asia, in sub-Saharan Africa, where you're looking at economic development, which is as important as your ESG and your climate asset, uh, climate uh, portfolio, so to speak, then clearly you have a different premise on it. So selling certain hydrocarbon assets, there is always going to be a willing buyer in parts of the world that have other priorities as well. And in terms of selling assets, well, do they need to sell assets or just change the mix? Because of course, it's about profitable assets as well, because if you don't have profitable assets, then you can't grow the unprofitable sides of the business as well with that cash flow. It's a delicate balance in how they conduct this transition. Uh, And as Bob Dudley said, and I'll go back to that, we face an existential crisis if we don't lead this transition correctly. Back to you. Steve, thank you very much for the coverage. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. Coming up on the show, tear gas, blocked roads and strong words from Carrie Lam mark the start of another chaotic day in Hong Kong. More on that after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshan, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend.
backlash protests have brought Hong Kong's financial centre to a standstill, effectively shutting down transport and blocking commuters. This after police in the city-state fired tear gas at a university campus amid heightened tensions after officers shot a student protester. And uh, also, uh, just standing across on the wires too, uh, one of the, the broadcasters is also talking about uh, water cannon used to disperse crowds along Nathan Road in Kowloon. This is, of course, a, a key attraction for many tourists going to Hong Kong. Let's go to Emily for more. Emily, it sounds like chaos on the ground on both sides of the territory, from Hong Kong Island to Kowloon. Just give us a sense uh, of what is playing out there today. Yep, uh, Karen, uh, similar pictures uh, to what happened yesterday, lunchtime protests. Uh, same, but not the same. If you can bring back the live pictures, we were looking at the Central Business District just outside Landmark. Uh, that is a home to a mall, uh, luxury goods stores. Uh, this is the Central Business District, about 500 meters away uh, from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. If you just uh, just look further down ahead the road, uh, you can see people filling the streets. That means the roads are blockaded uh, in Central, not too far away from uh, the headquarters of uh, Hong Kong's biggest bank, HSBC, uh, as well as, of course, a number of other notable banks. Uh, In Chater House, uh, you can see that elevated walkway connects to Chater House, where J.P. Morgan is housed. Uh, So this is the central business district in Hong Kong, with traffic paralyzed and protesters on the streets. Uh, They have been there for about two and a half hours now. This started at lunchtime. uh, And what was different to yesterday is uh, that yesterday we had riot police there in full force and tear gas being fired. Uh, That has not happened yet today, although we did see a riot police there earlier. They brought up their flags, warning protesters to stand down. Otherwise, tear gas would be fired, uh, but we have not seen that yet. It has remained peaceful, uh, similar to the pictures that we're looking at now. Uh, So it's a mixture of protesters and uh, people uh, just... uh in the middle of their workday, coming down from lunch, you could see people uh, dressed in their business attire mixed together with some in a black, uh, black clothing and even carrying umbrellas. And you can see a black flag there with uh, some of the banners. Uh, so this follows uh, yesterday, which was one of the most violent days of protest in Hong Kong in the five months of social unrest that we have undergone in the city. Uh, what we had yesterday was the two particular incidents that were brought uh, to the attention by Chief Executive Carrie Lam. She was talking about a station sergeant shot a 21-year-old student protester in the abdomen uh, who is now in serious condition in hospital after undergoing surgery. Police accused him of trying to snatch a police pistol. Uh, also, that happened uh, Later in the day yesterday, we had a man doused with fluid and then set a light. Carrie Lam calling that incident inhumane. We got a chance to hear from her yesterday. She spoke to the media at 6 p.m. talking about the more than 60 people that were injured and uh, the amount of violence that Hong Kong had just seen yesterday. This is Carrie Lam. If there is still any wishful thinking that by escalating violence, the Hong Kong SEL government will yield to pressure to satisfy the so-called political demands. I'm making this statement clear and loud here. That will not happen. 
So we've got uh, protests uh, in different pockets around Hong Kong today. Uh, the Hang Seng Index, the markets are uh, rather stable today. Uh, sentiment got hit yesterday. The, the market was down more than 700 points, uh, but a little bit of a recovery today. We're up about half a percent. We're about 130 points uh, into the afternoon session. We've got about an hour and a half to go uh, until market closes today. The Hang Seng at 27,023. Karen, it's back to you. Hey, Emily, thank you very much for bringing us the latest developments there. Well, let's push on uh, to Alibaba, who has reported another record singles day with sales of $38.3 billion in 24 hours. Arjun joins us now from the Alibaba campus in Hangzhou. Arjun, so they did it. They went ahead. They set a new record for sales for this major shopping event. But Karen and I were discussing yesterday on the show whether this really serves as a barometer for the health of the Chinese consumer. So give us a sense of what consumers are actually buying to help us understand how much to really read into these sales. Yeah, I mean, great questions there, Julian. And I'll just give you a sense first of what Chinese consumers were interested in. They were very interested in buying up imported goods and, and from countries like Japan, South Korea and Australia. But the U.S. actually fared extremely well as well. There was a lot of concern coming into this uh, singles day that perhaps there might be some anti-American sentiment from Chinese consumers, given the ongoing U.S.-China trade war. That wasn't the case. You saw brands like Nike uh, and, and Apple as well doing particularly well and, and some of their products amongst some of the top-selling imported products as well. Of course, domestic Chinese brands, especially in consumer electronics, like the Xiaomi and Huawei, also doing relatively well as well. But let's talk a little bit about what it tells us about the Chinese consumer. One of the trends we have seen this Singles Day is the increased spending and growth from consumers in some of these smaller Chinese uh, cities, perhaps these tier three, four, and five cities in China. And, uh, you know, uh, that those, those are... Uh, stats and statistics that have been backed up not just by Alibaba but also its rival JD.com which released numbers that said that the lower tier city consumers are buying higher items so this alone we can't take as an indicator of the broader health of a Chinese consumer but it is one indicator along with many such as Alibaba and JD's positive earnings reports recently and continuing growth in retail sales in China that shows us that the Chinese consumer remains fairly resilient despite a slowing economy. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.